0: You know, like Steve, I've enjoyed uh, looking at these Psalms. If I'm being completely honest, if two months ago you'd said to me, talk to me about Psalms 120 to Psalms 136, I'd have gone, yeah, they're like Psalms, and they come after Psalm 119, which is the longest one in the, in the, of all the Psalms. And that would be roughly the extent of my knowledge I don't know about you, you obviously probably all knew loads about these Psalms of sent, but I didn't, and I've enjoyed. And from now on, for the rest of my life, I feel reasonably confident that I can, like, chunk up the Psalms and know that 120 to 134 slash 136, I know what they are. I know what they are, and I know what they're about. So I feel quite good. And, and you're all lucky that you've come here this morning because we've kept the best one to last. How's that? Might be slightly biased, but you never know. So this is that the last time we're looking at these psalms, which are the psalms that were written as that the children of Israel, you know, Israelites went to worship in Mount Zion. You know, when we said that they roughly went, you could go more than this, but you know, they would go like three times a year uh, for feast. Not you wouldn't go every every one of these, but you make a special effort every so often to go, and it's come from all over the place. All, all over, you know, Israel and, and, and beyond, you know, make a pilgrimage, which is why, you know, these are, psalms are called the psalms of accents, because they're all different accents that came together as they went, eh? Now, have you heard a worse joke than that recently? <laughs> Apart from the result against Watford yesterday, but we won't go, we won't go there, um, now, so this is the, the, the last one. And we're looking at Psalm 127. Um, question for you. Let's just see if anybody is really, really brainy. I'm not expecting anybody to be really, really brainy. But you never know. You never know. If Andrea gives the answer, <laughs> I think there may have been some, you know, just, dis- no, okay. What is, Andrea, the Latin motto of the city of edinburgh the capital of scotland what is the latin motto has anybody studied there or have, you know looked at any of the documentation from the dave nisi optimus you, well, you got the first word right first oh, oh that's that is pretty impressive you know you n- nisi Dominus frusta Now now I've told you nisi dominus frusta Can anybody tell me what that means in English? Nisai dominus frusta I'll give you a clue It comes from the first verse of this psalm I'm not just asking you these questions for no particular reason It means Without God Frustration without God, frustration. I think, wow, fancy the capital, mind you, it is the capital of Scotland, eh? but fancy the capital of Scotland having that as their motto. It's on all their seals and when they, they pass legislation, without God, frustration. It just shows you that not everything in Scotland is stupid. We do do some decent things. Some wise person thought that. So, Basically, you know, this psalm is in the, the first first verse. It's trying to say, don't live your life without God. That's what he's saying. Don't live your life without God. Now, this is written, you know, by what well, we think is written by Solomon, who, uh, you know, not a bad guy to to say profound things. But he's not saying don't do anything. And this psalm doesn't say don't do anything. It says do stuff with God. It says it in, in the first couple of verses. You know, do stuff with God. It's not that God does it all. It's you live your life with God. God builds and you build. You watch and he watches. That You do it in partnership. So the obvious question when I was reading this that that, that I asked myself I'm going to ask you, really jumped out at me because of of Andrea's talk a fortnight ago. If you remember, I'm sure you'll all remember Andrea's talk. I'm not going to ask you to, like, summarise it. I'm not even going to ask Andrea to summarise it. Uh, But she talked about Sunday religion and everyday religion. Remember doing that, yeah? Sunday religion and everyday religion. And she was comparing how we live our lives. So I'm going to ask you a question based on the start of this psalm. So my question is to you, in the last seven days, how much has God been involved in your decisions? In the last seven days, if you look back and think, did I involve God in any of my decisions? Yeah, the psalmist said, living your life without God is a bad idea. How have you got on in the past seven days? If you're watching this online, just pause it and just go through and think, did I get any decision that I was making, big or not so important? I don't mean, you know, what kind of toothpaste should I buy? You know, but, you know, the decisions out of matter. Has God been involved? You know, I was reading my daily notes, uh, which I read on a daily basis and it was Rick Warren as you'll probably know if you've heard me preach in the past few years and this is something that came up in one of his daily notes last week or the week before last he said there was a a national survey done in in America so understand this America where 62% of the people surveyed said they were deeply spiritual deeply religious you know we you see you know. Serious Christians, you know, deeply religious. And then they said, okay, so they then asked this 62% of the survey, they said, how did your spirituality affect your decision making? So here's what they said 31% said they made their decisions, their choices, based on what felt right and comfortable. 18% said, They chose whatever was best for them. 14% said they chose whatever caused the least conflict with others. And 16% said they made a decision based on the guidance in God's word. Based on the Bible. So out of that group who called themselves serious Christians, deeply spiritual... When it came to decisions about their life, guidance for their life, only 16% used God's word. That's really interesting. It's interesting 21st century, especially, you know, this percentage, 14%, whatever causes the least conflict with others. I think you'll find that that percentage will grow in our society. Our society says more, well, as long as you're not harming anybody else, that's okay as if that's the most important moral criteria. But hopefully, if you call yourself a Christian, I want to encourage you to get God involved in your decision-making. And for me, the the simplest way and the most regular way, the most efficient way, maybe not efficient, that's probably not the right word, uh, the most consistent way is by reading the Bible and allowing God to speak to you from the Bible. I wonder if we were to do that survey in this church, what the percentages would be for us. Let me look at that same uh, psalm a, a slightly different way. Ask you the question another way. The psalmist uses the word vanity quite a few times in this psalm, and he says, "You may disagree that if you choose to live your life without God, you're vain. It's vanity." It's, it's, you know, pride getting in, in the way. It's what he says. You may not agree with that. I'm aware that there's people, you know, probably, nearly definitely in this church who choose to live the life without God. Many do. The psalmist, Solomon, one of the wisest men, says that you're crazy if you do that. But it is a personal choice. I want to challenge you this morning, if you're somebody who lives your life without God, without seeking God and with God, I want to challenge you on that rationality. It's often seen to be a rational decision to live without God and that Christianity is irrational and a faith base. The the guy called Blaise Pascal He was a a, a 17th century French mathematician. And he looked at this problem. He he looked at a thing called game theory. And he tried to weigh up the question about whether you should believe in God or not. And he came up with this thing called Pascal's Wager. And Pascal's Wager really came up with four different uh, consequences to this question. And he basically said, I'll take you through them. So you start off with the idea is that Top left is, uh, I believe in God, and God does exist. And if you marry them two together, you end up with what he called eternal joy. But there's another option. You believe in God, but he doesn't exist, which is top right. So if you believe in God and he doesn't exist, what's the eternal consequence? Well, there's nothing. You die and there's nothing. And it's okay. What happens if you don't believe in God. That's bottom, the bottom row. But he does exist. He says that's eternal suffering. He said, well, what happens if you don't believe in God and he doesn't exist, which is bottom right? He said, well, you die and there's nothing. So he said, when you mathematically weigh up the, the options, when you take on this wager, the sensible bet is to go for top left, is to go on the assumption that he does exist because of the benefits in the long term. Now, I don't completely agree with all his assumptions. The Bible doesn't say that believing in God means you're going to get eternal joy. The Bible says that even Satan and the the demons believe in God and tremble. Believing in God isn't sufficient. The Bible says that you have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Put him in charge of your life. Now, Pascal's going that way, but he simplified it. And I'm not completely convinced about the options after death either, but we won't go into that this morning. But you get the general idea of what he's saying. If you're weighing up the choices of living a life for God or not living a life for God, if you're doing it in a mathematical situation, the rational conclusion would be to believe in God. There's another guy that uh, I listen a lot to, and he's a psychologist called Jordan Peterson. Now he doesn't declare himself to be a Christian but he does say this, he said when looking at all the information, I act as if God exists or he's also said I choose to live my life as if God exists. He said it's the most fulfilling choice for life and he's not saying that as a Christian, he's saying that as a psychologist. Analyzing the most rational way to live your life. He says, Life is most fulfilling when you live it with the concepts and precepts of Christianity, when you live beyond yourself in a sacrificial, giving manner. He says a lot more than that. But what he's saying is, he said, If you're to make a choice based on rationality, choose the choice to accept that God exists. Blaise Pascal says, that when you take that step of faith, when you take on that wager, you find that God reveals Himself to you, and it's no longer just a step of faith, but it's a step of faith backed up with experience. But at first, it appears a, a step into the unknown. Somehow, frozen two came into my mind there. If you have young children, if you haven't, forgive me. <laughs> So I want to challenge you today that if you haven't taken that step, I want to encourage you today to take on Blaise Pascal's wager. I want to encourage you to take a rational step to believe in God and see what happens when you accept Jesus Christ into your life. But don't just do it because of the fear of hell or eternal damnation, as Pascal emphasised. Do it because of what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10. And he said that, Jesus said that he came to earth so that we may have an abundant life. Life in all its fullness. The best life now. Not something else in the future. The best life now. So just to push on a little bit more. Let me just dig in a bit more into this psalm. Let me read verses 3 to 5. When I first read them in preparation, I thought, wow, this is dodgy. How am I going to look, explain this? Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. When I first read that, I thought, is God really saying that, you know, if you've got children, you're blessed. If you haven't, cure sorryful situation. And when you read a lot of theologians and commentators who look at this, they, they try to back that, that up and say, yeah, that's how it is. But I read quite, quite a lot because I wasn't satisfied with what I was reading. And I came across quite a few who gave this very simple summary, which makes perfect sense when I expand on it. They said this, what these verses are simply saying is your security comes from God. Your security comes from God. Let me just expand on that. So this was written at the time when, you know, if you had lots of children, lots of sons especially, but lots of children, then in your own age you were more secure because they would look after you if you had to defend yourself at the gate, as it says in the psalm, you know, when people come at you, you know, if you're a big family, you had physical security. But the psalmist says in verse three that your heritage comes from God. These people come from God. Your children come from God. And the psalmist is reminding these people who put the security in the children that that is from God. Your security is comes from God, which ties in to the rest of the psalm about living your life without God being a bad situation. He's saying in these verses, remember where your security comes from. If you're proud of your children, remember they come from God. And when you understand that, the verse previous to that makes a lot more sense as well, which is verse 2. Verse 2 says this, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those that he loves. You know, slight confession for you, as I watch an American medical drama called Grey's Anatomy, does anybody else watch Grey's Anatomy? Ruth? Oh, I'm good. Wow. You've all got far more fulfilling lives than us three, let me tell you. (laughs) Don't get into it because it goes on forever and ever and ever. However, I was watching it a fortnight ago. And there's this doctor who like runs the hospital. And she's a workaholic. And uh, and she was driving to work in her, in her car. And like this voiceover, which was her thinking, you know, but out loud. And, and she said this. She said, I really hate that saying that people say, which is... Nobody on their deathbed wishes they spent more time in the office. The only people who say that are people who haven't got fulfilling jobs that give them satisfaction. And I, thought, I was watching it and I thought, No! How dare you say it? How dare you rip apart a really good proverb, a really good thought? Because 99.9% of people would agree with that thought. Because this person is a workaholic who obviously it's all made up, so don't get I'm not gonna get too emotionally, who obviously has, has lost many relationships because her entire life is taken up with work and, and wanted to feel fulfilled, you know, in that because of, of her work. And I thought, no, this psalmist saying, you know, it's all in vain if you haven't got your work, your toil, in the right priority. The psalmist isn't saying that work shouldn't be fulfilling. The psalmist isn't saying you shouldn't do a work that you love doing. The psalmist isn't saying you shouldn't enjoy it. The psalmist is saying, get it in the right proportion, the right balance. You know, one day, many years ago, the day after Father's Day, I was in my office with another guy that I shared the office with. And I said to this guy who was called Steve, I said, Steve, what did you do yesterday for Father's Day? You had a three-year-old boy I said, what did you do? And he said, oh, Robert, it was brilliant. He said, I spent the entire day in the office here because everybody else was off spending Father's Day with their family and I could get on and get lots of work done. I said, Steve, that's crazy to not spend it with your son. And he said this line, because I've never forgotten. He said, Rob, now's the time that I've got to get ahead in business. My family will always be there. Let me tell you, I believe he was sincerely wrong with that statement. And I said to him straight away, I, I was only, I don't know, 23, 24 at the time, you know, which is young, you know. And I said to him, no, see, you've got that wrong. Your family may not always be there. You've got to choose and get priorities right. And this Sam is, is saying here, don't put God in the wrong place in your priorities. Have God above work back to the first verse. How much is God involved in your decision making? Where does God fit into your life? You know, work without God is futile. It's vain. You toil in vain, as he says. Some people have hobbies that take over the priorities from God. And this psalmist is saying, have it in the right balance. Have it in the right balance. You know, there's many, many, many people, you know, who more so men, because men in general are more stupid than women. You know, in general, there are exceptions. I'm sure, you know, you as an individual man will believe you are the exception, but you're probably not. Uh, But in general, you know, men get more satisfaction from work in general. You know, uh, more career-driven, women in general are more relationship-driven. And therefore, you, you see more men who are focused and driven by work to the detriment of relationships. But we're designed to be... In relationships I want to encourage you you know to have fulfilling relationships and fulfilling work but not work to the detriment of relationships especially your relationship with God and that's what the psalmist getting at here He's saying, remember your security comes from God not from your bank balance not from your work not from your whatever it may be I mean Oligon Gunnar Schultz knows that it's not from your job doesn't he yeah, you know, things are transient, but your relationship with God can stay fulfilling. So that's what he's getting at here. Don't put other things before God. That's really what the psalmist is saying, whatever that may be. So I just want to just pull that together and say, you know, he's, he's been talking in this psalm about three things this morning. And that the first thing is this, how much is God really involved in your life? How much is he really involved in your decisions that you make? As you reflect on that, what would you say? Secondly, this morning I've been saying, if you haven't made a decision yet to take on that wager, if you haven't made a decision to believe in God and put Jesus Christ as your Lord, I want to challenge you and encourage you and employ this morning to make that decision and see what happens. Take the risk, take on the wager, take that step of faith and see what happens. And finally, I want to challenge this morning just to weigh up where your work and your hobbies are and the important things in your life. and don't have them higher than your relationship with, with, with God. Don't value them higher than your relationship with God and others. Let's just pray. God, I want to thank you for the wisdom of Solomon, which in many ways goes against human logic and human wisdom. Lord, I pray that you'll give us the the humility to reflect on our decisions And compare them against your guidance. Uh, Allow us to to be able to learn, to be able to apologise, to be able to adjust our priorities and our our thinking, to to slowly be more aligned with, with your thinking. Paul says to you, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so we'll know what God's good and perfect will is. Lord, help us. To, to transform our minds, to think differently, to prioritise differently, so that we put you at the head and don't live a life of frustration. Amen.